You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Do ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning, our New Testament reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were, wa- you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. And turn now with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We'll be reading verses 1 through 25, which is the whole chapter. 1 Samuel 26, 1 through 25. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hills of Hekelah? which is on the east side of Jeshimon. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives... The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord, paw, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? And what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is his men, if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So we pray, O Father, that you'd bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that it would bear fruit among us, that it would bear fruit in our city, it would bear fruit in our nation, that we would trust you, that we would believe you, and we'd live in the light of um, the stories that you tell us. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin kind of reminding you how the last several chapters have unfolded. Um, David left Saul's service Um, being warned off by Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan comes to him, tells, instructs him to be courageous, be of good courage, um, and uh, that his father is seeking his life. And so David leaves. Um, In chapter 24, um, David happens upon Saul in a cave as Saul is in a compromising situation. Um, He there tears Saul's robe 
um, his conscience strikes him for cutting the robe of Saul. If you remember, the robe symbolized or was a um, was the symbol of Saul's um, authority, his symbol of his anointing from the from the Lord to be king. Cuts his robe. The, the David's conscience strikes him. He repents of cutting the robe. Um, and still uses the robe as evidence that he had an opportunity to kill Saul and did not take it. He gets to chapter 25, Samuel dies. Very important. Samuel dies, and David just is barely stopped from carrying out vengeance on his own against Nabal. Um, he is, uh, the, the Lord uses Abigail there to chastise him, to, um, to warn him off from that. Uh, he stops short of that, and then the Lord kills Nabal um, shortly thereafter, uh, therefore proving that vengeance does not belong to David, it does not belong to us, it belongs to the Lord. And now we come to chapter 26, and it is much the same, but very, very different. In fact, uh, most of what we're going to observe in this text is going to be based on the differences between what unfolds in chapter 24 and what unfolds in chapter 26. When you come to places in the scripture in which two stories seem to be very, very similar, very, very similar, um, one key point in ter- learning to interpret the scriptures and listen to the scriptures um, is to pay attention particularly to where those two stories are different. And there's some notable ways um, in which the story from chapter 24 and the story from chapter 26 are different. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I want us to observe the narrative, and I'm going to point out four places, four ways in particular, that these two stories are different, and then listen to how this text would instruct us um, to live. So beginning, we have the Ziphites. The Ziphites clearly don't like David very much. Uh, they know where David is, and so they come to Saul. Um, Saul, who has left David alone. You remember da- uh, Saul acknowledged David's righteousness, even acknowledged that David was going to be king and uh, left David alone at the end of chapter 24. Um, But that didn't last very long. Now we get to chapter 26 and the Ziphites uh, inform Saul of where David is hiding um, in order for Saul to come and get him. Saul gathers 3,000 choice men. So these are like, you know, I was going to make fun of it. Never mind. Um, 3,000 choice men to go after David in the wilderness um, to kill him. Um, And goes out there. And uh, David sees um, Saul's encampment. He doesn't just happen upon Saul. He knows where he's at. Uh, And he gets some of his men together and says, who's going to go down with me into Saul's camp? Abishai, um, who we find out from 1 Chronicles, is David's sister's husband. However that works. Brother-in-law, obviously. I'm not good at, you know. Okay, that is brother-in-law. Uh, Greg, he, he volunteers to go with David. Um, they, go in, they come to the camp. They come and they see Saul. Saul has his spear, um, which throughout the book of 1 Samuel has symbolized uh, Saul's taking up or, or rejection of um, the, uh, the order in which Samuel established, which was very much in line with the book of Deuteronomy, um, in terms of the limits given to the king, the limits to his power. He's rejected those limits and instead has become a tyrannical king, just um, acting like the pagan nation kings. Um, and throughout Samuel, uh, the spear symbolizes um, that move by Saul to reject the limits that God had given his power um, as the Lord's anointed and instead uh, to become a king like the other nations um, 
The spear is stuck into the ground at Saul's head. Abishai says, um, it won't, I, I won't need two strokes to kill him. I'll just let me pin him to the ground. Um, it's an interesting turn of phrase as, you know, this same spear uh, Saul tried to use to pin David to the wall twice. Um, Abishai is now kind of telling, going back to those stories, says, I won't need twice. Just give me one, give me, give me one shot um, and he'll be killed. Uh, David responds to Abishai uh, by asserting two different things. Um, one, same thing he, re- he referred back to in chapter 24. Um, don't strike the Lord's anointed. We shouldn't strike the Lord's anointed. But two, uh, the lesson he learned in chapter 25, the Lord will punish him. The Lord's going to bring him to death. He's going to die in old age. He's going to be killed in battle. The God will strike him dead. Um, we don't need to strike him dead. We don't need to kill him. Um, the Lord... Uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Justice here belongs to the Lord. But David does take the spear and the pot of water. Um, uh, the spear symbolizing Saul's tyranny, his paganishness, um, and goes and stands across a lot. The text tells us a long way off. As he's standing a long way off, he calls interestingly to Abner. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Abner is now um, sitting in or standing in or serving in the role that, that David was that David had served in um, and, and the, serve, uh, the, the role that David was destined to serve in. In other words, um, David was meant to be a blessing to Saul. David was meant to be uh, the, the place where the Lord's spirit st- uh, still dwelled in Saul's house, even if um, uh, because of Saul's sin, the, Lord had, uh, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul himself. Um, David... Um, possessing the Spirit of God, was meant to be in Saul's house, at Saul's side, um, leading Saul's armies. Um, because David, uh, because Saul rejected the Lord, he also rejected the one possessing the Spirit of the Lord, which is always how it works, by the way. Um, instead, he's replaced uh, David with Abner. And then David calls out to Abner and condemns Abner, essentially saying, hey, um, what's going on here? Your job was to protect the king, and instead uh, a man came to kill him, named Abishai, um, and you did nothing to stop him. You let, uh, you let him sleep right through it. In fact, you slept right through it. Um, you yourself deserve to die. In other words, David's uh, kind of looking at his counterpart, the guy who took his place, and saying, you're really, really bad at your job. It's as if you got fired, and then you started a blog about how bad the person who replaced you was at their job. What's happening here um, on the hillside? Saul recognizes David's voice. Again, just like chapter 24, calls out to David and says, my son. What's interesting is a change that happens here. In chapter 24, David refers to Saul as his father. Here, David does not refer to Saul as his father. Instead, just refers to him as my Lord, O King. Um, Saul uh, acknowledges his sin, acknowledges his foolishness. Interestingly, this will be the last time that Saul um, and David interact. Um, and uh, David, uh, Saul ends this by actually blessing David. I think you see here um, the beginnings of, there's some debate over whether uh, in the kingdom will we know, will Saul be there or not. Um, I think there are good reasons to say no and there's good reasons to say yes. Um, and one of the reasons to say yes is you begin to see Saul here uh, demonstrating some measure of genuine repentance. He's not just acknowledging that he was foolish. He's not just acknowledging that he did something um, that he shouldn't have done 
or that David is more right than he is. He acknowledges his own sin and blesses David, not just acknowledging that he's going to be king, but actually blessing David, who will be king. Um, there's an interesting turn of phrase here. Uh, David is calling out the same word um, is used to describe uh, David saying, uh, you've come out, the word translated partridge here, um, uh, that it's, the, the, the word is, is simply a calling bird. Um, you've come out against me, a, a calling bird, um, who's calling to you now from across the hill uh, with 3,000 men. The idea there is you've completely overreacted. Uh, you've gone dove hunting, um, and to get that one little dove, you brought 3,000 men with shotguns. Um, I hope you get the dove, uh, if that's kind of your approach. There won't be, won't be much of the dove left. And so, as we already said, um, it ends by Saul confessing his sin, um, acknowledging his mistake, his foolishness, um, and blessing David. So, four differences between chapter 24 and chapter 26. First, in chapter 24, um, David assaults the king's robe, the actual symbol of um, the Lord's anointing on Saul. Um, David cuts the robe, and there in cutting the robe um, is actually striking at God's king, um, striking at God's anointed. Uh, David rightly feels that he has sinned in doing so and confesses that sin, confesses that he should not have struck at on the very symbol of the, the anointing of God, or the authority that God had bestowed upon Saul as king. Here, rather than cutting the robe of Saul, cutting that symbol, um, that, that right symbol, that godly symbol of Saul's authority, he inte- instead takes the symbol of his tyranny, takes the symbol of um, the, the thing that had, was marking Saul out as being like all the other pagan kings. Um, this is a, a huge difference. Um, and what Mark, and, and it really illustrates for us David's development, his growth, what he's learned um, there in chapter 25. Um, that, that his critique, his naming of Saul's sin um, can't be corrupted by his own sin, his own taking hold of or tearing at what God had rightly bestowed on Saul. I heard one commentator uh, describe the difference between 24 and 26 um, in political terms. In chapter 24, he burned the flag. In chapter 26, he held a protest outside of the White House. Um, there, there's a difference there. You're striking at a, a real symbol, um, a good symbol that shouldn't be struck at, and one is you're protesting the sin that's before you. Um, and uh, and that's, that's the difference between chapters 24 and 26. Um, there was an act in cutting the robe in which David is, is cutting at Saul's rightful authority as king. In chapter 26, he's pointing out, um, he's, he's enacting a kind of protest um, against Saul's wickedness, Saul's sin, Saul's idolatry, um, his self-worship. Uh, that's the first difference. The second difference, I already pointed it out, but it's notable. Um, the, the transition in chapter 24 where David confesses that Saul is still his father. Um, that there's something still intact uh, about the nature of the relationship. That has shifted now in chapter 26. He no longer calls Saul his father. In other words, something has irrevocably changed between chapter 24 and chapter 26. And what's interesting is Saul confesses his sin in chapter 26. There is... 
a recognition, a necessary recognition that we need to have in our lives that God is merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. He promises. Listen to this. He promises and he never lies. But to all who will confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive those sins. But he does not always, in fact, often doesn't remove the, the ramifications or the consequences of your sin. Um, I, I believe here that what you're seeing is Saul repenting of sin and, and yet David acknowledging now, something is irrevocably broken right now. Second difference. Third difference. Um, the e- emphasis in chapter 24 was, was between David and Saul in chapter 26. Um, all of the language, at least the, um, at least the heart of the text, is between David and Abner, which tells us something about chapter 26 um, that we should be paying attention to. The question um, that the text is driving at is, who is Saul's actual servant? Who's his just or righteous servant? Abner has just gone along with Saul's tyranny, his sin, his rebellion against God. David hasn't. But who is the true servant of Saul? It's David. You see, um, again, going back to chapter 24, the, the same point was made using um, different facts. But, but the, the, the reality of one of the things that's being taught to us in this text is as in 24, at, same in chapter 26, um, the, the, the kingship of Saul is more duly honored by the man who acknowledges the authority vested by God in the king and is willing to name the ways that that king is blaspheming and sinning against God. David honors the role and the office given to Saul by declaring Saul's sin in that office. In other words, Abner's just going along with things. David Refusing to go along with Saul's sin, but seeking to honor the fact that he's king, to honor the office given to him, names the ways that Saul himself is dishonoring the office and the authority that's been given to him. This is, by the way, real love and real service. There is a disease within evangelicalism in which it is perceived to be unloving. It is perceived to be unserving. To point out the, the, the sins that run rampant in our culture and are destroying our neighbors. That are destroying our neighbors' children. That are destroying the political establishments, the educational establishments, the media establishments in our country. And that are frankly destroying those who live around you and that you work with. 
There is somehow a perception that if we declare rightly all that God says, which will include necessarily a naming of sin, a naming of abominations, a naming of ways in which um, the, 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 the constitution of marriage, uh, of, of civil government, uh, of, of all of the various things at work in the culture around us, that somehow if we name the sins that are around us, that this is unwinsome, that this is unloving, that this isn't serving our neighbors. I, I want you to see at the heart of this text, David is the one doing the serving and David is the one naming, in fact, in some level, mocking the sins of Saul. And at the heart of this text... At the heart of this text is the message, David is the rightful servant. David is the one who is loving Saul. David is the one who is being blessed by the Lord and should be honored by us as we look at this. Meanwhile, Abner, Abner's just asleep in, in comfort next to a king who's in high rebellion against God. Last, um, rather than just acknowledging David's righteousness or his justice, um, Saul acknowledges his own sin, his own foolishness in this text. Um, the, the shift from chapters 24 to chapters 26, Saul acknowledges his own sin and actually invites David to come back with him. David refuses, again, kind of emphasizing the reality that something here has been broken. Truly broken. There's been a consequence to Saul's tyranny and to Saul's sin. So some things to take away. I got ahead of myself and already started on number one. But I'll go back to it. I could say it twice because I like saying things twice sometimes. True servanthood, real love, doesn't just sleep at comfort, posing no threat to the culture around you. It, it honors what men and women are called to be, bearing the image of God faithfully in the world. And it does so by naming sin, by calling for repentance. Real servanthood, real love, doesn't look at political tyranny and wickedness and simply sleep passively by Pretending like everything's fine. It calls for repentance. It names sin. But real love, real servanthood is not just letting your children's sins or your spouse's sins or your neighbor's sins or your roommate's sins um, uh, go unaddressed. It uh, oftentimes, if it's a sin against you, love covers over a multitude of sins. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that you just go along like everything's fine. It means as the people of God, if we're to learn from David in this text, we must stand and faithfully call men and women, stop destroying yourself. Stop acting as foolish ones. Stop living in rebellion against the God of the universe. Real service seeks, um, seeks repentance. Real service declares how things ought to be. Real love 
stands in the face of abortion laws, of, of the proliferation of sexual sin everywhere in our culture, and declares what ought to be true. This is David's service, faithful service, commended service to Saul. To call him to repentance and to trust the Lord. Second, there's a difference between acknowledging that this situation isn't ideal. It's acknowledging that someone's wiser than you are and confessing your actual sins against God and against your husband or against your wife or against your children or against your neighbor. They're very different things. And it stands out in these two texts, chapter 24 and 26. And it's a theme that gets developed between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. One of the fundamental differences between David and Saul in chapter 24 and between David and Saul generally through the whole scope of 1 and 2 Samuel is that Saul is often willing to acknowledge uh, that things aren't, didn't work out quite right, that maybe this wasn't the best thing for me to do. Um, whereas David, in the face of merely cutting the robe of the man trying to kill him, uh, of the man who's acting as a tyrant, who's, who's wicked, repents. Between Saul's sins at the beginning of 1 Samuel and David's sins with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel is David falls on his face, names his sin, and pleads with God for mercy. And Saul just tries to hold everything together. The gospel calls us to repentance. It doesn't call us to kind of a mere acknowledgement that maybe, um, maybe we sin sometimes or we're a little bit broken inside or whatever the thing may be. It calls us to fall on our face and plead for mercy. And the glory is that God promises every single time to get it. But for far too many of us, we stop short of repentance We stop short of naming our sins. We stop short of of actually owning our responsibility before God, before our husband or our wife or our children or our neighbors, of acknowledging the ways that we've sinned against the Lord or sinned against them. We just say, ah, it's just just sin. We will even use the word sin, but not recognize our need, our desperate need for mercy. And there's a difference. There's a real difference between confessing your sins and what we often do like Saul. Saying we've acted foolishly or haven't done quite the right thing. Or of course there's like some pride in there or some lust in there. Oh, repent. Learn to hate your sin. Learn to love, to treasure, to delight in the mercy of God. Third, one of the things that's struck me, struck me in particular this week as I was preparing this sermon, 
is how free from bitterness David is. And here's what I mean. He goes from being anointed by Samuel to be king. He then, in the hope of that promise, serves faithfully, valiantly, with great success to Saul. And, and then Saul, the man that he sees almost as a father, the man who's king, the man who he's given his life, risked his life to serve, tries to pin him against a wall twice, or it runs him so that he has to basically live out in the wilderness with, with a really sketchy group of guys. And, and out there with a group of guys, he's on the run, he's living in the wilderness, he's running for his life, and Saul keeps showing up to kill him. Yet David refuses to lift his hand against Samuel, or against Saul. He names Saul's sin, yes. But he does not act with any measure of bitterness. I think this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. I think we are very prone to bitterness in our day. I don't want to get into all the reasons why. I think there's a lot of reasons why, but but it's fascinating to me how bitter husbands can become because they're tired after a day at work and the kids are a little bit loud and that just happens every day, which does happen every day. And there's growing in them a seed of resentment or bitterness. It's tragic to me. So many wives. Husband comes home at the end of the day and accumulating over weeks, he didn't do just the right thing or show just enough attention to me or the dishes or dinner or whatever the thing might be. Just the seed of bitterness grows up such that it becomes easy to find fault How many of us maybe in this room are single and your life hasn't turned out quite the way you wanted it to turn out? You you thought you had a promise from God that you'd be married by now and you're not. You have this seed of bitterness, bitterness against God, but maybe you're smart enough to to know not to admit that. So you just find yourself irritated. Irritated with all those married people. Irritated with women or irritated with men generally. (laughs) And here's David, promised the throne, anointed by God, by Samuel, in the presence of God, given the spirit of God, serves faithfully and successfully and diligently, vanquishing Saul's enemies. He's on the run for his life. How is that possible? Because I'm going to guess that none of us in the room are going through anything close to what David's in the midst of in all of this. So, so, So how in whatever small trials or big trials or big difficulties or huge disappointments, 
that you have right now, how do we hold fast and not grow bitter? I would say one of the things that comes up over and over again, particularly in these pointed moments for David, is he acknowledges the promises of God, he acknowledges the justice of God, and he relies upon the providence of God. There's your three-point sermon at the end of the sermon. He quotes here the promises of God, clinging to them. He, He is reminded of the justice of God, that God judges the wicked and he upholds the righteous and the faithful. And last, he trusts in the providence of God, that God upholds the world, he upholds your life, he upholds all the circumstances surrounding your life and the world. And never once does he take a break. Never once does something happen that's outside of his sovereign and good and just control. So if you would hold out in front of you, as we're about to at this table, the precious and rich and beautiful and covenant promises of God, that you would believe with all your might that he is just and good. And that you would know that he is sovereign. That this world is his. All of history is his. Your life is his. Even tomorrow at 5.30, the, uh, the eerie window of the evening where all the kids seem to have a propensity to lose their mind. God is sovereign, he is good, and he has made glorious and good promises. Let's pray and prepare for communion.